Good morning, everyone. Oh, it is such a delight and joy uh, to be here with you all. A um, couple quick uh, disclaimers first. You can probably hear it in my voice. I don't normally quite sound this low and gravelly. I'm uh, recovering from a cough this week, so um, bear with me there. Hopefully my voice uh, will hold up. But uh, yeah, for those who don't know me, again, my name's Andrew Collins, um, and I guess I'm the newest member of the teaching team as of today. Yeah. Um, So, you know, it's it's funny. I've, I've been a Christian in some form or another pretty much my whole life, and I've led small groups and done worship and all this stuff, but I've never actually preached a sermon, and now it's happening here at Liminal of all places. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's no, uh, if you're new here, there's no single kind of lead teaching pastor here. There's a team of, what, six, seven of us now, um, and growing by the month. Uh, so, yeah, if you're not vibing with what I have to say, Come back next week, uh, you'll hear from someone else. Hopefully you'll like them more. Uh, So with that, let me take a moment to ask for some divine help (laughs) this morning. Good parent God, creator God, remind us daily of the sanctity of all life. Touch our hearts with the glorious oneness of all creation as we strive to respect all the living beings on this planet. Penetrate our souls with the beauty of this earth as we attune ourselves to the rhythm and flow of the seasons. Awake our minds with the knowledge and desire for shalom and grant us the wisdom to know that we can have heaven on earth. Amen. Um, Yeah, so for those who may be uh, joining us for the first time or uh, who may have missed a few Sundays recently, we've been introducing uh, this series on shalom. Uh, Shalom is an ancient Hebrew word, comes to us through the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, It's often translated peace. Maybe if you have a church background, you've heard that at some point. Um, but as my dear brother Wayne Randolph has started unpacking this word for us uh, last month and the implications of what it means, uh, we've seen that it has a much more robust meaning than merely peace is in the absence of conflict. Uh, to have shalom, quick recap, uh, is to have a flourishing and abundant relationship, not lacking in anything. And there's four domains to this, with God, the spiritual, with each other, the social, with nature, uh, the physical, and with ourselves, or the the psychological. Um, Other words uh, that I like that we could use to kind of flesh this idea out uh, would be wholeness, or completeness, or simply just well-being, being well. So today we get to start uh, unpacking each of these four dimensions. Uh, We're going to start with shalom with nature. Shalom with nature. Um, As we go, you might hear me use the term creation 
as well instead of nature or the earth. I'll kind of kind of be using those words interchangeably. Um, so some of you may be wondering now, why nature first? Like it's not even the first one on the list there. Um, why not start with shalom with God? After all, God's our creator. We're told the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, so don't we have to like get that right first before we talk about any of the other ones? Yes and no, maybe. I don't. Um, ten years ago, I definitely would have said, "Yeah, we do." But I think part of the beauty of shalom is that you really can start with any one of these four domains, um, and soon, inevitably, you'll find your way into all the others. Because um, all four of them are, as we'll see, inextricably intertwined and connected. So shalom with nature, I think, uh, is as good a starting point as any. Um, and in fact, I think there actually are um, some good reasons to start with nature specifically, which we'll get into more later. Um, so for the first Sunday on this, to introduce this series, I want to start... Um, by getting into the biblical text. Uh, we're just going to do a, a really quick kind of 30,000-foot uh, survey um, of a few passages uh, that I think are pretty significant and, and helpful for our understanding here uh, to see if we can pull out um, some sort of narrative here and maybe find some helpful guideposts uh, and a framework in the text that can give us a sense of God's vision and intention for shalom in the created order. Sound good? All right, let's do it. Um, so I'd like to start with a quote from Wendell Berry, um, who honestly, I'm, I'm surprised I don't hear this guy quoted around here in these circles more often. Um, Berry is a poet, a novelist, uh, and a farmer in Kentucky. Um, and what he writes here, I think, serves as as good a thesis statement as any for the way we understand God's relationship with the created order. So Barry says, I take literally the statement in the Gospel of John that God loves the world. I believe that the world was created and approved by love, that it subsists, coheres, and endures by love, and that Insofar as it is redeemable, it can be redeemed only by love. I believe that divine love, incarnate and indwelling in the world, summons the world always toward wholeness, which ultimately is reconciliation and atonement with God. God loves the world. It's as simple and foundational an article of faith as they come in Christian circles. Um, but when we really start, I think, to tease out what that means, um, especially if we understand the world is not just people, but the whole created order, it has some pretty radical uh, implications. All right, let's get into the text. Uh, we're going to start at the very beginning, Genesis 1.1. Um, if you have a church background, you're probably familiar uh, with this passage, with the creation story. Um, or the creation song or poem is really how, how it comes to us um, uh, through, the, through the text. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole thing. Um, originally I wanted to, but this was going to be way too long. So I, I do want to run through sort of a, a quick Spark, Spark Notes version 
um, to highlight some important words and phrases here. Uh, so we'll start going through the days. Day one, in the beginning, God created. The earth was a formless and desolate emptiness. The text tells us, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. Day two, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. God separates the water and the sky. Day three, God says, let the waters be gathered so that dry land appears. Land is created, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit of all kinds. God saw that that was good. On day four, God said, let there be lights to separate day and night, to serve as signs for seasons, days, and years, giving us these rhythms, these natural cycles. And God saw that it was good. Day five, God said, let the waters teem with creatures, with birds and fish. And God blessed these creatures that he made and said, be fruitful and multiply. On day six, God says, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, all the animals. And God saw that it was good. And God created humanity in his image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God saw all that he had made and it was very, very good. Just a few things here uh, I want to highlight. First off, uh, if you go back and and read uh, the full chapter, there really aren't any negative words used in Genesis 1. The only exception uh, is perhaps at the very beginning in verse 2 where it says the earth was a formless and desolate emptiness. But then God is there acting to bring order, to bring life out of chaos and absence. Kind of like the song uh, we sang this morning. That was very uh, beautiful how that, how that lined up, Rachel. Thank you for that, that choice. And then what do we see as a result of God's moving in the world? He speaks, he creates, and there's goodness and blessing. Goodness and blessing over and over again. God saw that it was good and God blessed what he had made. Um, so Wayne, Wayne has got mentioned this already, but to really drive home this point, before there's any sin, uh, before the, the snake shows up eating the forbidden fruit, that, that whole deal, before anything goes wrong, we see here very clearly there's this original blessing. All of nature, the entire created order, is good. I like how Father Richard Rohr uh, puts it in his book, on Franciscan spirituality. He says, what most religion treats as separate, matter and spirit, humanity and divinity, has never been separate from its beginnings. Spirit is forever captured in matter, and matter is the place where spirit shows itself. It is one sacred world. I think that's, that's very apparent uh, in the original text that we see. Um, the second thing from Genesis 1 uh, that I want to highlight 
um, which I think is, is where we, we start getting into, into some, some sticky issues potentially with this whole relationship with nature. Uh, it's the part about God creating humankind in their image slash his image. Um, some interesting language there. Uh, and here I will read uh, the, full, the full text. Um, so God says towards the end of, end of Genesis 1, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea uh, and over the birds of the sky and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every, every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there, there are two... Uh, potentially problematic verbs there, uh, you may have noticed. I underlined them. Uh, rule and subdue. Um, other translations might, might use the word dominion. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but uh, from the little bit of research I did, um, it does seem that in, in the original language, these two verbs uh, both can have this connotation of to have dominion over to dominate, to tread down, subjugate, or even put into bondage. Um, you don't have to be a, an in-depth, have a PhD in history to understand um, how maybe that, that translation and usage of those words um, has been used to justify um, some pretty damaging beliefs that nature exists for our exploitation as humans, for us to use as we please. Um, and especially in the Western industrialized world, this is, has resulted in a lot, of, a lot of death, a lot of destruction. Um, and so if there is to be any possibility or healing or restoration, what Shalom invites us into, we have to acknowledge uh, the exploitation and reckless disregard for our fellow creatures and the habitats that sustain them, which, by the way, ultimately sustains us too. Um, and far too often this has come at the hands of those uh, who would claim to follow Jesus, to be, be friends of this creator God. <laughs> we'll be getting into that, I think, more in this series. Um, but uh, one more point about this, this misguided, I think misguided understanding of the text also underscores uh, one of the dangers of the it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus mindset that Wayne spoke about a couple weeks ago. Uh, many Christians, especially in the American evangelical world, I think it's especially prominent um, here, uh, have told the salvation story, and I've, I've done this, uh, in the past, have told the salvation story of Jesus in a way that makes it only about human beings. Who does Jesus come to save? Just us. Well, where does that leave nature? All these other good, blessed things that God made. 
Um, for many believers, sadly, it becomes merely the expendable stage for the human divine drama of history. And in this view, whether, whether we intend it or not, um, God ends up being found not so much in nature, but in human history, because salvation is reduced to an evacuation operation where the world itself, the earth itself, is left to burn. But if the whole created order is innately good, and as Barry says, sustained moment by moment through divine love, that narrative doesn't really line up, does it? Um, but still, we're, we're left with this, this tricky language of subduing and ruling, um, which still kind of feels problematic. <clears throat> um, again, I'm not, I'm not a, a Bible scholar, but I do have a minor in Bible from a, a Christian college, and one of the things I learned uh, through that um, is that one of the foundational principles of Bible study, or really any textual study for that matter, is that you've got to read the text in context, right? And if you look at these words in context, they show up right after God has made humans in his own image. So if we are image bearers, if we carry something of the divine nature within us, then I think it follows that we're meant to mirror and display this character of God. And what is that character, that nature? Well... It's that God loves the world. God creates. God declares it good. God blesses and says, be fruitful and multiply and flourish. So taking that cue, God effectively says to us, to humanity, okay, take this creation that I have made, which is so dynamic and vivacious and beautiful, and go somewhere with it. But do it in a way that leads to flourishing for all life not just for your own selfish ends or your own comfort and self-preservation. Now, the biblical uh, writings and writers don't give us a ton of guidance um, on the particulars of how to do this, uh, but they do uh, tell us where to look um, and give us some clues about what to pay attention to. And that, one of those things, is nature itself. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is from Psalm 19, um, beginning verses here. Read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Sit with that for a second. I, I love the, the mysticism here, if I can be so bold as to use a term like that. The cosmos declares God's glory. Each passing day speaks to us of divine wonder and wisdom. And even the night... Even the darkness, even the stillness, even the absence offers revelation. The question is, are we listening? Are we encountering? Are we coming to know 
God in nature. Uh, I like how Thomas Berry, second Berry I'll quote today, um, Thomas Berry was a Catholic priest, cultural historian, uh, scholar of the world's religions. Um, I like what he says in his book, The Dream of the Earth. He laments, We are talking only to ourselves. We are not talking to the rivers. We are not listening to the wind and stars. We have broken the great conversation. By breaking that conversation, we have shattered the universe. So at the heart of achieving shalom with nature is that we have to start by listening to the created order. We have to commune with the trees, the rocks, the birds, the sky. And on on this issue, I, I think the poets and the mystics have a lot more to offer us than the theologians do. Um, Some authors who I personally have found especially uh, transformative and helpful on my own journey include Annie Dillard, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who comes at it from more of an indigenous perspective, Wendell Berry, who I've already mentioned, Mary Oliver, um, Persian mystics, Rumi, Hafiz, uh, St. Francis of Assisi from our own Western tradition, just to name a few. Um, We're really blessed, especially in in this day and age with all the information and access we have, uh, to have a really rich tradition and wellspring of voices, Christian and otherwise, uh, that can help us attune to the presence of God that saturates the entire cosmos. Um, I want to quote Richard Rohr again. Um, He has a kind of a counterintuitive take uh, on this that I think is, for me at least, is really comforting. He says, don't start by trying to love God. So we could start with shalom with God, but we're starting with shalom with nature. Um, Don't start by trying to love God or even people, he says. Love elements and rocks first. Move to trees, then animals, then humans. Angels will soon seem like a real possibility, and God is then just a short leap away. It works. In fact, it might be the only way to love, because how we do anything is how we do everything. In the end, either we love everything, or there is reason to doubt that we love anything. So my friends, the, the invitation here. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think, is to a more simple, accessible faith. Uh, Entering into this grand, huge, cosmic love feels too big or overwhelming or daunting. Start with a tree. Start with a rock. Start with a cloud. Might be surprised what flows out of that. All right, let's jump to, uh, to Romans. We're, again, fast-forwarding, doing a really quick overview here uh, to the New Testament. <clears throat> um, Romans 8 here, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome. Again, I'm just, just grabbing a little snapshot here. He says, The eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. <laughs> it's interesting to, to read that text today, isn't it? Um, you know, I see creation groans and suffers and my mind instantly goes uh, to the ecological crisis and climate change, exploitation of nature, all, all that stuff that we're, we're dealing with that's happening in the world right now. And it's like, yeah, of course creation's hurting. It's in crisis. It's horrible. Now, I doubt that that's um, exactly what Paul had in mind, you know, right in the first century. Um, <clears throat> but I think this text is uh, significant. It, it can help inform our understanding of shalom with nature because it does seem to suggest that there is an intrinsic link, uh, this interconnectedness between humanity and creation. Because we are, after all, a part of nature. We come from the dust of the earth, just like all other creatures. We return to the dust when we die. And one thing that I think Paul is getting at here is that our fate as humans, as divine image bearers, and the fate of the world are tied to each other. The earth itself longs for redemption. It longs to return to this state of shalom just as we do. Now, again, this has some pretty big implications for our theology, right? Um, again, it means that salvation, I think, has to be more than some sort of cosmic escape plan uh, to get to heaven and leave the world behind. Because God loves us and God loves the world. And he's not just going to jettison one or the other. <clears throat> on the contrary, and in certain um, kind of schools of, of environmental thoughts, and this is maybe a, a bold claim to make, but I'm going to make it anyways, um, I think we humans actually have a part to play in the healing and restoration of nature. Uh, these days, especially in the face of the ecological crises we're facing um, a lot of people are starting to wonder if humans are an inherent blight on the world. There, there is this thought that maybe it's actually in the best interest of nature that we go extinct. And there's even a movement right now, maybe you've, you've heard of it, it's gaining popularity, um, of voluntary extinction. Um, it's not like a suicide cult, but more like we need to stop procreating so that eventually we die out as a species and nature can, can flourish again. Um, I think there is, there is room for debates about population levels and how many human beings the earth can physically sustain. Um, but I, I can't get on board with voluntary extinction. I don't, I don't think that's shalom. And I think that we can, it's, it's, it's hard to believe, it's hard to see these days, but I think we can, as children of God, actually be a force for all life on the earth. 
Uh, we can be pro-life in the broadest possible sense. And I don't, don't mean that politically, um, but I don't even mean it as in pro-life for all people, um, but for the trees and the whales and the pelicans and the kelp forests and the mountain lions. We can live in ways that benefit all of these creatures because all creation is groaning and it's longing for us to step up and into the fullness of shalom. All right, one last passage. I'm going to grab a couple chunks of verses from the end of Revelation here, starting, starting 21. Um, <clears throat> so this is a kind of wild vision, heavenly vision uh, the Apostle John has. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Uh, And then, the next chapter, 22 we have this vision. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Now there's a lot of a lot of poetic and, and metaphorical language here. Um, so don't need to get too hung up on some of the details. I know there's the bit about um, there's no longer any sea. And as a surfer, I'm like, there's, there's no way there's no waves in heaven. I'm like, that's just, can't be, can't be right. Um, but, <laughs> um, but one thing that jumps out here uh, in this bookend of the biblical narrative. So again, we started... Back in Genesis 1 with creation, this is the very, very last chapter here, um, is that we've gone from the garden to a city. So we've done something with nature, with the, with the physical world. We've taken it somewhere. Uh, but this heavenly vision the text offers us isn't divorced from nature. <clears throat> it may be symbolic, uh, but that doesn't mean that... Um, it has escaped from or somehow transcended our physical bodily existence. On the contrary, uh, I think this vision is whole and complete within our physical existence. We see this imagery of a river flowing with the water of life. And the waters of this river water these trees of life which bear a diversity and an abundance of fruit and whose leaves have these we could almost say like medicinal properties, right? To heal, heal people, to heal the nations. So do you see shalom here? There's healing. There's abundance and restoration and communion. 
This great voice says, the tabernacle of God is among the people. God's dwelling among them. The divine presence, love, and peace, it's everywhere. Now, the text uses uh, the future tense in some places, but I don't think this vision from Revelation has to be relegated entirely to some future state. Um, in much of Western Christianity, um, heaven and earth are thought of as these two separate places. Um, but in the teachings of Jesus um, and other, other biblical writers, uh, from what they say, I think it actually... <coughs> Um, makes more sense to almost understand them more as like two dimensions or ways of being, ways of existing that can and do at times overlap in space and time. Uh, the illustration on the slide here is from a video from the Bible Project uh, about this idea, which I'd encourage you to, to check out if you want to dig into this more. Um, but it basically shows how the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How once they were fully united, which we see in the creation account in the garden, um, and then driven apart. Uh, creation's groaning. Of course, things, things have gone wrong. They're not as they should be. And about how God is bringing them back together once again. And so we live for now in the in-between, in this liminal space where shalom is not yet fully realized across the earth, but where it is possible. It's possible to have these glimpses, these, these spaces of heaven here and now, and for us, through the Spirit of God, to create that more and more and more as we pay attention to the world as we tune into and bless the innate goodness of creation and work for the healing and restoration of all things. Uh, I'd like to invite the band to come back up as we wrap up our time. You getting Harper? Oh, okay, good. Good, I have a little bit more to say. All right. Um, stalling? No. Um, as we wrap up our time, I want to conclude with uh, one, one last little reflection, a, a little thought that I really like um, from the life of Jesus. I haven't talked a ton about Jesus so far. Um, but in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, um, there's this account where Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and pray. And the writer includes this curious little detail um, from Mark 1. It says, immediately the spirit cast out into the wilderness, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tested, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. He was with the wild beasts. Has anyone ever thought about that? Like, just stopped and, and noticed that detail? I know, like, I've, I've read this a number of times, and it's like, okay, moving along, but like, What? Um, what was Jesus doing with the wild beasts? Why is that detail included? Um, the text doesn't say, but uh, I like what a, a pastor friend of mine, this, this old Anglican priest, uh, once speculated. He thinks 
that Jesus was with the wild beasts because he was comforting them. He was comforting them. I can't say this with any theological certainty, and I doubt that you'll, you'll find it in any scholarly commentaries. But wouldn't it be just like Jesus to do that? To go out and comfort the wild animals. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Doesn't that feel like the Jesus the Gospels portray? I think so. And that, my friends, is shalom with nature. Thank you. Thank you.